Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Joining me from the Santa Barbara studio is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always a joy to be on with you. How's little Gilbert doing? <laughs> He's good. He's walking around <laughs> causing terror. He's taking swimming lessons now, which is, you know, something that all families in Florida have to do when their oh, kids right. are just a yeah. couple years old. And he's is almost he, floating. Is he like his namesake yet anyway? He's like rotund, Gilbert Keith so Chesterton? Yeah. Is he rotund? <laughs> okay. Hey, um, I've liked seeing a lot of the pictures and videos coming out of Santa Barbara as you guys hmm. tried to figure out creative ways to still worship and share the sacraments and the liturgy with people. Um, of course, you know, you did your daily online masses for a while, but yeah. in your local region of Santa Barbara, one cool thing you recently did was there was a whole drive-in service at a nearby parish <laughs> where you offered benediction, sort of a liturgy of the word. Talk about yeah. that. How'd that come about and how'd it go? Oh, it was marvelous. It was just, see, prior to getting the permission to bring people back to church, so we didn't have that yet, but the county said we could have an outdoor service if people stayed in their cars and didn't receive communion. So I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, uh, it's not perfect, it's not ideal, but it's something we can do. So I did it in two places, one up in Santa Maria, which is about an hour north of Santa Barbara, and then another one in Carpinteria, which is about, oh, 20 minutes south of me. And uh, in each place we gathered, I don't know, maybe 200 cars, but each car I'd say had at least two, three, sometimes four people in them. So there were a lot of people there. And um, we got up on a little dais with the good sound system. And so we did basically the liturgy of the word for Pentecost. And then a benediction. And um, it was very moving to me. And we brought out the Blessed Sacrament and did the benediction. But just to have people there, they wanted to be in the presence of the Eucharistic Lord, you know. And it was powerful for them. We had pictures of people weeping, you know. They've been starving for the Eucharist. And it was like, almost like looking through the window of a bakery, I suppose, where you can't have the bread yet, but you're, you're sensing it, you know? Um, so I was very moved by it. In both places, there was a marvelous turnout, a marvelous enthusiasm. One of my favorite moments, it happened in both places. At the end, um, the pastor got up and just said, you know, it was wonderful to have everybody here, and we can't really see you. I wonder if you could somehow signal. So all these hands came out the the, you know, the window, but then people started to honk. And before you knew it, all the horns were honking. And it was like a little, I don't know, like a little alleluia, a little liturgical expression. And the same thing happened in Carpinteria. At the end, as I was walking off, the horn started. Then everyone's horn was, was blowing, you know. I don't know. I just loved it. It's like the spirit groans in rumblings yeah. that even the heart can't understand. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> Listen, today we're gonna to talk about the topic of distraction. Now, you and I have mentioned this on several episodes, especially the ones where we talk about social media and phones and their addictive qualities and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think it's any surprise to viewers of this episode, especially if you're watching it on your phone or on social media or whatever, that we're all hyper distracted. We feel pulled in a million directions. It's hard to focus on just one thing for an extended period of time. I think of Pascal's great quote that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Do you think mm -hmm. that quote is still true 400 years after he uttered it? Oh, it's truer than it was when he uttered it. Um, and what he meant, of course, was we distract ourselves so readily from the great questions that ought to preoccupy us. Uh, when you sit by yourself alone in a room, I know it's maybe an introvert's uh, dream, but it means I got the time and the space to think about 
God, about the meaning of my life, about who I am, of what I'm doing. The trouble, Pascal said a long time ago, was divertissement in his French, diversions or distractions. And, you know, to be fair, he, um, he had a problem with this. He was somewhat addicted to gambling. And, uh, of course, Pascal is the famous wager of Pascal. Well, that's grounded in a way in his, his uh, typical distraction of, of gambling. But he knew that, that he was frittering a lot of his life away. Now, here's Pascal, one of the great geniuses who accomplished more than, you know, almost anyone. But yet he himself thought, I frittered a lot of my life away with, uh, with idle distractions. So he felt most of us most of the time. And I think, you know, that's not a bad way to examine your conscience at the end of the day, is to go back and say, okay, how much of my day was spent in kind of trivial stuff, just distracting myself from the really essential matters? Bishop, I think if anyone's self-reflecting honestly, they'll admit that they have way too many distractions in their lives Yet at the same time, we keep coming back to them. We, why do we put yeah. up with all these distractions? Why do we keep going back to them? Because we like them, you know, because of Pascal's point that we'd rather do that. It's hard to st- sit by yourself alone in a room. It's hard to wrestle with the really important questions. And so, of course, we prefer distractions. We prefer triviality. Now, look, I get it. You can't spend every moment of your life wrestling with the profoundest questions. I get it. Of course we need, you know, uh, lighter, more trivial things. But do we spend most of our time doing that? One way to distinguish it, Brandon, is between uh, leisure activity that's more contemplative in nature versus trivial or frivolous leisure activity. And that's an important distinction because you can be involved in leisure activity, let's say, you're not working, or maybe you're not wrestling with the most profound questions, but you're engaged in something contemplative, uh, and that's all to the good. I think of, you know, as a sports fan, watching a baseball game. is That's not really a, a divertissement in, in Pascal's sense, like an idle distraction. I think that's a form of contemplation. We would say more about that, but I'd make perhaps that distinction too. Lest you think everyone should become a monk and spend their entire life in a cell wrestling with the most difficult questions. I wouldn't want to go that far. But we've gone to the other extreme. We're going to talk a little bit here in a moment about leisure. That's part of the reason why we titled this episode Distraction and Useless Things. Useless things being a good, not something we should avoid. We need things that we do for their own sake, not because they're useful for something else. Uh, But I want to, before we get there, spend a little time talking about this 2018 book. It's by Maggie Jackson, who has become sort of an expert in this realm of human distraction. And it's titled Distracted, Reclaiming Our Focus in a World of Lost Attention. She makes the point that a lot of the things that we get distracted by are good. They, they draw us towards some good end. However, these perceived goods actually drift us further from the ultimate goods. And she gives three examples. I want to spend a little time talking with you about each one of them. First of all, multitasking. She says the BlackBerry, you know, at that time, now the iPhone, fulfills a longing in our American culture psyche that since work is is perceived to be virtuous, the more we work, Mm -hmm. the more virtuous we are then being able to multitask means we're you know, more virtuous. We're always ready to take emails, always ready to answer a phone call, even if that means putting on hold what's in front of us. Uh, what's the danger of this multitasking dependency? 
You know, I think of it a lot. I, I travel a lot. I'm on airplanes. And, you know, of course, you can't be on the iPhone when the plane's actually flying. But, you know, when you're waiting in the waiting area and then you get on the plane, people are just... I remember so often thinking, you know, can't that wait? <laughs> I know you're dealing with some, you know, businessman. That can't wait for a couple of hours. You have to do that right now. And so, yeah, it's introduced us to this sort of constant plugged-in mentality. What's wrong with saying, no, part of the day, I'm really unplugged from all that. Um, you know, even though traveling is difficult in a lot of ways, there's, there's something kind of nice. Like when I go traveling, I usually bring a book or like a more serious book. Because my, my move on a plane or a waiting area is to kind of cocoon. I kind of go in my own little space. And I block out things, and I'm really going to concentrate. Because in a way, on the plane, you don't have a lot of distractions. You're sitting in your chair. And you could turn on the movie or something if you want. But there you are. And you don't know the people on either side of you. So you don't have to talk to them, really. And you can focus. Um, so I, that's a contemplative sort of move. But very often people do the other thing, as they say, no, no, I, I'll just keep working, 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 working until the very last minute. No, maybe unplug and contemplate rather than work. It seems like the whole culture is fighting against this tendency to just focus. I'm thinking about airplanes and air travel specifically. I'm like you. I, I see airplanes as the best time to read. Yeah. It's my most contemplative time. I, you know, I don't have obligations for kids or for work. I can just sit and yeah. read. But even then, the little TV in front of you is like turning on automatically, even when I'm trying to turn it off. Or there's announcements over the speakers. And <laughs> yeah. when you get to the airport, a lot of restaurants and airports now set up iPads bolted to the table in front of you, not just to that. take your order, but to play games and stuff. And I'm like, I, I just want to focus on the person in front of me or the book that right. I'm holding. It's, it feels like you're fighting a huge uphill battle. Yeah, and all the time. And, and it's, again, that distinction between uh, work and, um, and contemplation. Work is good. I and mean, that's true in the biblical tradition. It's true in the great philosophical tradition. We all know that. Now, work I'm defining here as some practical activity that we do for the sake of some greater end. So you go to work in order that you might, you know, get the money which you need to take care of your family. You go to work that you might have the money you need to pay for your apartment or whatever it is. Fine, fine. But then what do you do when you do have that time? When you are actually with your family, they've been fed, you're now home in your apartment that you've, you've paid for through your work, now what do you do? And see, I find people often have a hard time answering that question. What do I do when the goal of my working has been achieved? See, the useful has done its thing, which is great. Now comes the beautiful time for the useless. And you mentioned that earlier. That's Aristotle's great uh, intuition. The highest things in life are useless because they're done for their own sake. But I think we, we have so hyper-emphasized the useful that people are often lost. They don't know what to do with their useless time. And therefore, it's filled up with a lot of uh, triviality. It's filled up with divertissement rather than with legitimate objects of contemplation, if I can put it that way. One of which might be, I love when parents do this. Um, they'll talk about just looking at their kids can be a great source of of joy, and I mean joy like with a capital J, like a, a, a deep sense of, of the meaningfulness of their life. That's a contemplative exercise. Playing with your kids 
uh, is a contemplative exercise, right? Because it's useless, but you're spending time in this joyful activity with your kids. Um, reading a book or watching a film or going to a baseball game, those too are contemplative activities. I think in our culture, we, we grossly underplay all of that. We don't train people how to do it. We train them in the work, work, work mode, the useful mode. But the useless side of life, we don't. And therefore, it does get filled up with divertissement, and that causes spiritual trouble. In her book, Distracted, Maggie Johnson mentions a second culprit behind this distraction culture. The first is sort of multitasking and this emphasis on work, work, work. The second, though, is speed and efficiency. So yeah. we're always trying to find the quickest, easiest, most efficient way to get something done and to maximize our output. Um, I've noticed, though, especially among millennials and Gen Zers, there's sort of a return to the slow, the you know, un, uh, non-digital ways of doing things, things that are less efficient, that take longer, but they're doing them on purpose because there's a value in not right. just trying to maximize your potential. But I found if that's your goal, if you're just trying to you know, complete as many projects as possible, people become in her words, administrative appendages, you know, they're just sort of cogs in the machine of your efficient life, then distraction is the inevitable outcome because there's just so much going on. Yeah. I used to give, years ago, I used to give uh, a mission, a parish mission, and it was on, uh, it was called Food for the Soul. What is the soul like? And one of my uh, themes there was, the soul likes to go slow. So we are addicted to speed, that's true. We like speed and everything. Fast connection. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, this is a faster you know, program. That gets me. All right, but then when you've quickly gotten all these tasks done, you've quickly gotten where you want to go, now what do you do? See, because now the soul kicks in. The soul likes useless things, and useless things should be done slowly because you're meant to savor them, not race your way through them, right? Think of people, and it's largely lost art in America, but when I was in Europe studying, you'd see this. You see it still now in Rome when you go there. People that know how to savor a meal. You know the way Europeans eat. Uh, you get to a restaurant, and um, you're just there. You're just, as long as they gave you a table, order your food, the food comes slowly, you know, a bit at a time. Uh, you savor it, you linger over it, you spend many hours in conversation. It's not at all unusual in Europe to start eating at, you get there at 7.30, dinner comes maybe 8-ish or so. It's now 10.30, um, you're having your after-dinner drink or something, you're still talking. That's not indulgence or that's not something decadent. There's something beautiful about that. It's someone who knows how to go slow through this great event of eating and socializing and spending time with, you know. What do we do now? <laughs> I'm guilty of this too. Get to the restaurant, where's the waiter? Where's the waiter? Come on, let's order. You know, bop, bop, bop. The food comes, and then how often, look around a restaurant in America. What you'll see is people now, they're all together at the table, but they're all like this, right? They're all, they're all looking at their phones. No, no, this is the time for you to talk to each other, look at each other, listen to each other. Um, you know, I, I'm a baseball fan. Um, a classic critique of baseball, and there's something to it, because it, it, the game has gotten too long. I, I agree with that. But a classic critique is, oh, baseball, come on. It's so slow. I mean, come on, to hours and hours. Um, 
No, but you're, you're meant to savor a baseball game. You're meant to spend a lot of time with it, looking and listening and, and watching what's going on. That's a lost art. Well, Maggie Jack Jackson has a bunch more uh, analysis of how we became such a distracted culture. So I encourage people to check out her book. Again, it's titled Distracted 2018. But I want to spend the rest of this episode on practices we can adopt to alleviate our hyper-distracted lifestyles. Um, the first one, and I think we've hinted at it a few times already, is to favor leisure and useless things. And I mm -hmm. think here, not just of, of uh, the ancient Greek philosophers, but more contemporary people like Romano Guardini, Joseph Pieper, his writings on leisure, and uh, the late Roger Scruton, who wrote a lot on quote unquote useless things and their value. Um, how do we find things, Bishop, that are properly leisure and useless things? And how do we stick with them instead of getting distracted by other things? Don't you love people? I, I think of um, William F. Buckley, I'm dating myself here a bit, but uh, you know, prominent figure some years ago. But Buckley was a great you know, social commentator, political commentator. But he was a man of great passions, and one of them was um, sailing. And he was a, uh, you know, a sailboat, these large ocean-crossing vessels. And Buckley has these wonderful books about when he crossed the Atlantic Ocean with friends, crossed the Pacific Ocean with friends. And the great adventure of that, and loading the, you know, the food and the wine onto the ship for their, their leisurely, elegant meals and so on. But also talking about navigation, talking about the weather, talking about just spending time on the deck, you know, looking at the stars and so on. I, I love that. As someone who was so clued into this useless thing, because, heck, you could take a plane across the ocean much more efficiently but they chose this older form of transportation that involved these sort of contemplative uh, disciplines of studying and looking and waiting and so on. Um, develop a, a passion for useless things like that. As I mentioned, baseball. Sports is by its nature contemplative. That's what the Greeks understood. And we might see it more superficially, but they didn't see it superficially at all. It was a type of contemplation of the beautiful, you know? Um, Books, obviously, you and I are great bibliophiles. Um, read a good, deep, profound book that takes a long time to get through and to understand. You can't do that superficially. Let's talk about another practice to adopt, and that is to turn our noisy devices, like our iPhones, into more single function or limited type devices. You know, there's been a trend among all electronic devices to have more functions and be able to do more at one time. I'm thinking <laughs> specifically of the Kindle devices. You know, originally a yeah. Kindle was just a device to read books. To you read know, you could book, download yeah. books, you read a book. Now even Kindles have added apps and music and the internet browser and all this other stuff. So they're inviting you to go from your book to some other activity, making it harder to read. Um, we talked I don't know, several months back about um, Digital Minimalism. It was a book by Cal Newport. And he, he uh, posed the question, ask what tasks that you need your iPhone for, for example, and then ask yourself, are there simpler ways to accomplish this goal, either on my phone or through another device, that remove these distractions? You know, So 
I don't know if it's if it's you know like reading latest articles on the website that you keep checking multiple times every day. Can you instead set aside an hour once a week and then just catch up on that day? Is it really necessary to check it 10, 15 times a day? But I think a lot of people struggle with this bishop with iPhones. It feels like there's a never-ending invitation yes. to click this, try this, open this app, go to this website. You experience that. I know you do, don't sure. you? Sure. And and the makers of all these things know just what they're doing. They know it's not that hard to get someone addicted to something. We're like, we're animals attuned to addiction, it seems to me. And they know how to do it. Um, and you're right, it, you start looking at the iPhone, and before you know it, you're drawn into something like, why am I looking at this? Why am I spending time? My favorite example is, is just the Facebook feed, you know, this thing's coming up on Facebook, but you find yourself <laughs> scrolling through it. And it's and endless. Think, it never comes to an end. Facebook, yes. Twitter, Instagram, it's an endless feed. Yes. And then you say, but wait a minute, why why am I doing this? There's something too about screens. I don't know if it's it's the bright light, it's the colors. There's something about screens that draw us or addictive. We're like looking at the the printed page of a book, that can be like, oh, it's kind of drab, you know, give me some pictures and some color. Uh, now again, I love pictures and color. But um, there's a danger because if you're, if you're distracted away from things like books that require a lot more attention, whole worlds remain uh, opaque to you. I found this, Brandon, in my years of teaching. So I taught at Mundelein from 92. I became rector in 2012. So on and off for about 20 years. I noticed it for sure in those 20 years, a certain decline in people's capacity to read a lengthy and complicated text. So when I first started teaching, you know, you'd assign, I want you guys to read, you know, these 75 pages of the Confessions for next time. I want you to read, you know, this whole section of Plato's uh, Republic. And then as the years went by, people would say, I mean, Father, I, I can't possibly read all that. I'm, I'm not going to spend all that much like, time. Read, read these two paragraphs by next class and then you'll be <laughs> yeah. good. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's too much. <laughs> so I know that's the, that's the danger. And it's a discipline. It's a discipline, and you've got to give it time. And, um, you know, you've got to talk to people who know how to read books. Like something, you know, I use all the time as a pen. So if I'm reading a book seriously, not, not something before I go to bed. I mean, I'll read like a novel or some history before I go to bed. But if I'm reading um, seriously, I always have a pen in my hand because it keeps me in the game. It's like keeping score at a baseball game. If you're keeping score, your, your mind's really in the game. So with the pen, I'm checking, questioning, what? You know, I'm commenting on the book or like, yeah, good. Or then an arrow, oh, that sounds like something else I just read, and, you know. So that keeps me in the game. Um, you know, so there's disciplines you can use. But we've got to get better at that, I think. When I came into the Catholic Church, one of the new practices for me was Eucharistic adoration. Never yeah. heard of it before, never practiced it before, but I know a lot of people in my generation raised around noisy screens and notifications and news feeds and all that stuff find Eucharistic adoration to be such a relief because yeah. you walk into this room, no sound, no conversations, no quiet. There's a, a locus of attention. Everything's directed toward one thing, adoring yeah. the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And especially if you commit to like an hour of adoration, you know, you, you tell yourself, I'm locked in here. I, there's nothing else that's gonna pull me away. I'm committed to this. That sort of like rewires and retrains your mind and makes yeah. it easy to contemplate elsewhere. What, what, what else does the Catholic spiritual tradition offer as an antidote to our distracted culture? 
Oh, so much. I mean, think of, of Lexio Divina, which is that very slow, prayerful way to read the, uh, uh, the Gospels or read any part of the Bible. Um, contemplative prayer. So uh, Eucharistic adoration, I think, participates in that category of contemplative prayer. Think of meditation, an Ignatian-type meditation, where you spend the time to enter into the scene of a Gospel story. And you, you look and you smell and you hear what it's like and so on. Um, all of those are, are contemplative practices. Or, you know, even something like you go to the great medieval cathedrals and you find those, those labyrinths. And I've always loved that because the labyrinth, let's say it's Chartres, the most famous one, you enter, and I, I've walked it a couple times, and it takes you a long time. It's a big, big thing, and it, it's a winding path, kind of intestine-like. It winds back on itself and, and goes here. And, and you end up, you start here, and you end up like there. You, you could walk there in like 10 or 5 steps, but you've just taken 25 minutes to get there in this sort of meandering way. Well, remember the soul likes to go slow. It doesn't, boom, like to get there. It likes to go slow. Um, so, I mean, all those are practices designed to overcome this sort of trivialization or divertissement approach and learn to look. You know, so much of prayer, even go beyond the Christian tradition here, go into the Eastern, like Buddhist traditions, is just to be awake to something. Really awake to it. Here's a flower. <laughs> Here's a river going by. To really see it. Do I, do I see it? Watch it. Contemplate it over, over a long period of time. Those are all kind of soul calming moves. If we can offer maybe one final recommendation at the risk of sounding a little self-referential, but the last episode we talked a lot about the Word on Fire Bible, and I mm -hmm. think that that text itself can be a major antidote to distraction because it pulls you in through the art and through the scriptural text. It's something you can sit with for a long while and meditate on and reflect on. So maybe if uh, you want to start reading deeper books and longer reading sessions, maybe try it with the Word on Fire Bible because in some ways it's made for that kind of deep contemplative reading. That was behind the, that Bible in many ways was this whole idea of how to draw someone into the Bible, especially distracted contemporary people. Uh, here's a Bible with some little tiny footnotes at the bottom. That's probably not going to do it. But something that does grab their attention through the visual, but also lures them into a contemplative um, stance. That's very much behind what we were doing there. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. You can send in questions to the show by visiting askbishopbaron.com. You can record your question on any device. Today we have one coming from Gabriel in Massachusetts. He's asking about how to prove that there's a transcendent realm. Here's the way he puts it. Hello, my name is Gabriel from Natick, Massachusetts. My question is a prerequisite to the question of God. How can we prove there is this other dimension, something we don't inhibit, and that we can't measure and scientifically or mathematically prove. Thank you. Yeah, good. I mean, in many ways, that's the question of basic apologetics. But, you know, I'm going to take a clue from your, the question itself. Think about mathematics for a second. Mathematics. Plato understood this. It's, it's still true. When you move into a properly mathematical realm, you're not looking at seven items in front of you. You're, you're contemplating the number seven. 
you're not looking at um, a triangularly shaped figure in front of you. You're thinking now about a triangle or about a circle, not a circular shape that you can see like that camera lens, but circularity, a circle in the geometrical sense. You have stepped out of the sensible world because points and circles and, and lines and triangles in the abstract sense are not visual items. They are pure abstractions. They are, if you want, invisible realities. Now, press it a little further. You mentioned both math and science. All of science rests upon objective intelligibility, right? There has to be some kind of formal structure to reality or the sciences cannot get off the ground. Therefore, something like ordered harmonies necessarily structure a scientific approach to life. Press it further especially contemporary science. Read Einstein and the, and the quantum theorists and all those people. It is inextricably tied to mathematics. You can't do high science, especially today, without desperately abstract mathematics. Therefore, science, we say, oh, that, that most orders me to the sensible world. Well, yes, in a way, but you can't analyze the sensible world scientifically Without mathematics, mathematics is in itself invisible. It's a nonsensible reality. I think of my nephew, you know, who's at MIT and doing all this high science, and he's going to be, you know, building and designing robotics and all this business. Terrific. It's about the sensible world, but he cannot begin to do that work without being very comfortable in the invisible world. That's why mathematics actually is one of those doors that opens to what I would call, and I think you're hinting at it, a transcendent world. See, I'm, I'm just a, a bitter opponent of this reductive materialism and scientism, which is, which is compromising the souls of people today. And I just want them to say, even as they hold up science, which they should, I hold it up too. We love science, we love science. But to say science is to say math. To say math is to say the invisible. And so don't play this game of, oh, these poor old religious people with their crazy, wacky ideas about a higher world. If you're doing science, you are in the higher world that I'm talking about. You've at least walked through into the vestibule of the world that I'm talking about. So I, I, would, I would turn that on its head, that objection. It's precisely math and science that orders you to a transcendent world. Okay, end of rant on that subject. Well, as we work to get Bishop Barron's blood pressure back down to normal levels, <laughs> yeah. uh, I wanted to mention one final time to pick up your copy of the Word on Fire Bible. We talked about it during the whole episode last week. It just came out last week on June 15th. Um, but you can find it at wordonfire.org slash Bible. We have three beautiful versions, a paperback version, a hardcover version, and then the leather version. If you have young sons or daughters or college students or just people in your life that haven't read the Bible, aren't familiar with the Bible, don't like religion, this is the book you can pass them to lure them back in, to become re-enchanted with the religious world of the Bible. So check it out at wordonfire.org slash Bible. Well, thanks again for listening and watching. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.